So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the scriptures, for your message of life in all its fullness, and for the privilege of coming to the Father in prayer. So we pray that you would anoint Linda as she speaks to us, that the words she shares would speak into our hearts and minds and help us forward on our journey with you. This we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Linda. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. It's lovely to see Kelsey here this morning. I think I saw her in January, and she's really grown, hasn't she? Brilliant, doing well. So my task is just to look back over the passage that we've heard read to us, which you'll find on page 1022 in the Bibles on your seats, and just to draw out from that passage what might be relevant to us today. But I'm going to start in a different part of the world. If you are ever lucky enough to visit the city of Beijing in China on business or as a tourist, then you'll probably be encouraged to go to a part of the city which is among the oldest parts. It's called the Hutong. And it's a small district in northern Beijing which has been preserved so that it's still possible to see how the ancient city once looked and how the citizens of Beijing once lived. And the houses in the Hutong district are just as they would have been in centuries past. Walls and rooftops packed closely together, as you can see, separated by tiny alleyways and inner courtyards. And the streets in the Hutong district are so narrow that the best way to visit this ancient part of Beijing is on a bicycle, like this. And if you look very closely, you may see some familiar faces on this slide on one of the bicycles. And if as you are bicycled down the alleyways, your bicycle driver stops and invites you to slip inside one of the gateways in the alleys, then you will probably find inside a series of little inner courtyards. And each courtyard has several rooms opening onto it. And these rooms serve different functions. Some were for eating, some were for cooking, some were for sleeping. And very often different generations of the same family, grandparents, parents, children, adult married children with their families, nieces, nephews, cousins, would all have a room of their own, as well as share some of the communal space. And as new rooms were needed for new branches of the family, so these would be built around the existing courtyard, or another little annex with a new courtyard would be constructed, and so the whole house would gradually extend to accommodate everybody. Everyone who needed a home, everyone who needed to be part of a close, loving, supportive community. Now, these traditional Chinese houses are very different from the sorts of accommodation that we're used to or that we expect in society today. And I do wonder if actually this was the sort of building or accommodation that Jesus had in mind when he was talking to his disciples in the passage that we heard. Because in verse 2 of chapter 14, he says... His father's house has plenty of room. And if you look at other Bible translations, they say, 
in my father's house are many rooms or many dwelling places, many places to give you a home and a community. And in Jesus' time, it was common for members of an extended family or a clan to inhabit a cluster of rooms, often with some personal space of their own, but sharing some communal space, not unlike the Beijing pictures that you've seen from the Hutong district. But what was Jesus trying to communicate through this picture and through his conversation with the disciples? When we're trying to understand, it's always helpful to look at the context in which Jesus said something. So in chapter 13 of John's Gospel, which is the chapter before the passage we read, We see a description by his friend John, who wrote the gospel of Jesus' last supper with his friends, the the night before his trial and his crucifixion. And so we know this was the last close conversation he would ever have with his disciples, who had been so close to him for three years before his death. It's his last chance to talk to them about some important things, to pass on any remaining teaching after his three-year teaching program. But more than that, it's his last chance to prepare them for a time when he can no longer be with them, to lead and guide them in the ways they'd come to expect and be used to. And so in chapter 13, we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet to model for them what mutual commitment and shared leadership should look like. We see him share bread with the one who will betray him. And we can sense Jesus' sadness as he watches Judas slip out into the night and into the darkness of the personal choices he has made. And by the end of chapter 13, the time has come for Jesus to be very explicit about the fact he will be leaving his friends, to follow a path that they can't follow, they cannot tread, they cannot share with him, at least not yet. So how do you think the disciples felt about this? Low, awful, shocked, anxious. They've been with Jesus for three years, sharing daily life with him, watching him grow in influence and win approval among the ordinary people, if not the religious leaders. They've seen him perform miracles They've seen him teach with authority and heard the reactions of the people. They've even helped him in that. And then just a few days, they'd seen him ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, triumphantly but humbly. And they watched and marveled as the crowds acclaimed Jesus as king in the style of the great King David of old. Surely things could only get better. Jesus will prove to be the promised Messiah, a savior king who will free his people. And yet now, for the disciples, against all their expectations, they hear him speaking of his departure, and worse still, of his own downfall amidst betrayal and abandonment. Well, fortunately, in chapter 14, we see Jesus comforting his friends. He's quick to meet their anxious questioning with words of reassurance and promise. Don't worry, he seems to say. Yes, I do have to leave, but there is a purpose to my going. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust me. I go to prepare a place, a place where you too can be with me again. It's the home of my father and there's plenty of room for everyone 
who wants to be in his house. And as so often in life, Jesus uses more pictures and ideas to try and help his friends understand. But that doesn't stop them struggling to grasp his meaning. But where are you going? Ask Peter and Thomas and the others. And why? What does it all mean? And what will our life be like as a result when you are gone? For me, one of the most striking aspects of this passage is just how Jesus answers all their anxious questions by pointing his friends back towards himself, towards who he is, towards why he has come, towards what this will mean for them and for all humanity and creation. And it's as if Jesus is seeking to focus his friends' hearts and minds firmly back onto himself rather than onto their questions and their uncertainties and their anxieties because that's the only way that they are going to get through this time of transition. Their first anxiety concerns their future direction. Where are they bound? How will they get there? Thomas is brave enough to ask the question very directly, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we possibly know the way? And Jesus replies very simply, I am the way. I am the way. He reminds them of who he is. He is God's son. He reminds them of that father-son relationship, which is so fundamental, without which he cannot exist. A relationship which was confirmed publicly at his own baptism. And again at the transfiguration, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In fact, this seems to be so important, he says it twice in verses 10 and 11. Look at me, says Jesus. See God, your Father, as well as mine, and trust God. Trust that he can and will lead you in the right direction and to the right place throughout your life. I am the way. A second source of anxiety and uncertainty for the disciples centered around why Jesus had come and what was going to happen next. Through Jesus' teaching and his miracles, the disciples had clearly grasped something of his mission to bring in God's kingdom. They recognized that he followed in the footsteps of the great prophets and kings of old and that he bore all the hallmarks of the promised Messiah. God's anointed one who would save his people and rule in a new way. So was this no longer true? With Jesus now threatening to leave them, had they been sold a lie? Had this all been in vain, a cruel deception, a hope and a promise for which some of them had left everything? And again, Jesus' response is simple. I am the truth. I am the truth. Perhaps not quite the truth you had been led to believe by your religious leaders. Perhaps not quite the type of Messiah that had so long been expected by the Jewish people. But nevertheless, I am the truth. You can trust me and what I say. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Trust me when I say this. Be encouraged and reassured You do know him and have seen him. If you want to see the face of God, look at Jesus. 
or at least trust in the evidence of what you have seen him do while he's been with them. And thirdly, what sort of life was it going to be for the disciples without Jesus if he left them? After three years on the road with him, hearing what they had heard, seeing what they had seen, learning what they had learned... What sort of quality of life, what richness of life could the disciples possibly hope for if he was no longer there? Surely life in all its fullness as they had experienced it in his presence could not continue. It must come to an end. And once again, Jesus' response is simple. I am the life. I am the life. The life you have been living with me, he says over the past three years, is the life of God himself. The work we've been doing together over the past three years is the work of the Father living in this world that he created and sustains in love. That life does not stop. And all those who focus their hearts and minds on me, Jesus says, through faith in me, will continue that work and will do even greater things because I have returned to my Father. So at this final meal with his friends, Jesus seeks to quieten the confusion and anxiety of his friends with words of comfort. He seeks to focus their hearts and minds away from questions about what will happen and how will they cope and how will it all work out and what will it mean for them. And instead... Focus on their relationship with him, a relationship built over time and through difficulties and joys, a relationship grounded in who he is, what he's come to do, and the life he has come to share with them. Read my lips, says Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life. So what does this say to us today in our time and place? Well, I wonder if you ever feel as the disciples did at that last supper with Jesus. Maybe you're feeling anxious about the direction to take or the destination that lies ahead of you. Perhaps you're feeling confused about where the real truth lies or want the answers to the great questions of human existence or just a better understanding of what's really important in life. Or maybe you just long for a quality of life that has permanent meaning and value beyond the everyday here and now of our brief lifespan on this earth. Each of us has our own journey of faith We start our journey at different times in life and we travel it at a different pace. And baptism is always an important way stage along that journey. For the Christian journey typically involves encountering God through the person of Jesus. It means seeing in Jesus the face of God's love and being drawn towards him just as the disciples were. Jesus becomes for us the way, pointing us heavenward, offering direction to our life and purpose to our being. 
And as we come to know Jesus better, just as the disciples did, so we begin to recognize who he is. We start to understand through prayer and study, Bible reading, and just talking together in the Christian family, why he came and what he has done. And in our human world of so many relative values and competing claims on our allegiance, Jesus gradually becomes for us the source of all truth and particularly the reality about ourselves, about others and about our world. The one in whom all things make sense and hold together. And as we entrust ourselves to God in repentance and commitment, so we come to experience his life lived through us in all its fullness and resurrection power. This was the lived experience of the disciples, and it continues to be the experience of Christians today. And if this is something that you want to explore further for yourselves, then please talk to somebody, talk to Matthew or myself, and we would be happy to listen and care for you in this way. Jesus' words to his disciples at that Last Supper remain true today, here in our time and our place. Jesus is still the way, the truth, and the life. And the second installment will be next week, when we look at how Jesus' continuing presence in our world becomes a reality. Amen.